Good morning and welcome to everyone to this wonderful Sunday morning service coming to you from World Outreach Church for All Nations here in Lawrenceville, Georgia. Hallelujah. Thank you so much for joining us this morning from all the various platforms and for those of you guys in the sanctuary, we welcome you and we pray that something God will say today will minister to you and encourage you and establish you on your way. And as always, our vision here at WorkFind is building strong families and serving global communities. And that's why the message this morning, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, making the case for grace groups uh, because this grace groups is one of the tools that God has given us to build strong families. So let me just dive straight into the message and as a way of getting to the message this morning, for those of you out there and in here who have the opportunity to take the vaccination, I want to encourage you, go get your jab. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> Yours truly has been jabbed twice. Woo! Amen. Glory be to God. Yes. We thank God that this global pandemic that has uh, caused so much changes and uh, distress and discomfort and in, other, in some cases even death, uh, we thank God it's coming to an end. Everything has an expiration date. Glory to God. And we want to thank God for his faithfulness, for his promises that he has kept us, he's keeping us, and we are prospering, we are thriving, and for those who are hurting, that is comforting them by the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Okay, so this morning, again, making the case for grace groups, one of the greatest marvels of God's creation is the human body. It's such an efficient system that works to sustain life. Now, what is more amazing is that this efficient system is made up of tiny units of cells that measure as small as eight micrometers. You wonder what's a micrometer? I want that too. A micrometer is 10 times smaller than the diameter of a human ear. Think about that. 10 times smaller than the diameter of a human ear. For those of you that have an ear, you can just pull it up and, and check it out. And for those that don't have it, just, just rub your head. Amen. It's all right, all the same. <laughs> Scientists estimate that the body of an average person contains around 30 to 40 trillion cells. And this information is from the Medical News Today of 2019. Amen? Now, that's amazing. Think about that. That the average human being has about 30 to 40 million cells that's constantly reproducing itself in order to keep the human systems and human body working. Now, it is from this concept of the working of the human body that the body of Christ, the church, has derived the terminology. You've heard it, cell groups, house churches, Small groups, on and on and on and on. All of them are the same. Whether it's a small group, whether you call it a house church, or as in our case, we are calling it a grace group. Why? Because we want to uh, uh, 
lay emphasis on the fact that we understand that it is by the grace of God that we are enabled to do and to function as a body. We want to be reminded of that, amen? So while they are all the same principle, again, we just want to lay the emphasis on the fact that we are dependent on God's grace for the effective working of all of these groups. Now, the book of Acts, I'm going to, go, I'm going to do a very quick glossary of the book of Acts, very, very quickly. I, I'm not going to turn to the scriptures, but I'm going to give, the, give you the references. The book of Acts records for us the exponential growth of the early church. Pay attention, watch this. In Acts 1.15, there were 120 believers in the upper room. In Acts 2.41, there were 3,000 people added on the day of Pentecost. You see that jump? In Acts 2.47, the Bible says, numbers continued to be added daily. And in Acts 4, verse 4, we saw 5,000 men added to the church. Now, they didn't mention women. Now, you can imagine, anytime you have a man, you're going to have maybe 10 women. Not can children, okay? Not can the women and children. Acts 4, 4, 5,000 men. Acts 6, verse 7 says that the number of those who believed was multiplying. And then by the time we get to the end of the book in Acts 21, verse 20, it was, it's recorded that there were thousands who believed. Now, background. In the early church, when all of this was taking place, there was only one temple in Jerusalem. Only one. You can't drive down this uh, uh, Brazil, Brazil Boulevard of Jerusalem back in the day and find 19 churches. Uh, no, no, no. Only one temple standing. So the question then is, where did all of these people I just counted for you, where did they meet? That's number one, number, one, number one question. Number two, how did they ensure that those who came to faith not only stayed in the faith, but also grew in the faith? Two questions we need to think about as we minister, as we dive, and as we look at the, making the case for grace groups. The church is growing. But there was just one church or one temple in Jerusalem. So how did, how did, they, how did they function as a body? How did they fellowship? What happened? Well, in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, you can give me this. Acts 2, 46. Thank you, Jesus. Here we go. So continuing daily. For those guys, once a week was not enough. Ah, nobody's saying amen there. <laughs> These guys were not looking for weekly, uh, well, weekly, no, no. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. 
They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. So there you have it. Give me one more scripture, Acts chapter 5, verse 42. Because in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Acts 5.52, or rather, Acts 5.42, you got it, you got it. And daily in the temple, and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Wow. And we wonder why the church grew. See, this is, this is a challenge for all of us. We want to see New Testament results. But we will not attain that if we don't employ New Testament methods. So the church was meeting on two parallels on a continuum. They had their large corporate worship in a temple, and they continued to meet house to house. And that's why some call it house church, church on a house, cell groups, and here we call it grace group. Amen? So they met in the temple courts for corporate worship, but in the smaller gatherings, in their home. Now, you, you, have to, you have to ask yourself the question. What they did had never been done before. Up till that time, there was no template or SOP of how you do church. They got born again. They got baptized in the Holy Ghost. The church began to grow and say, wait a minute. Oh, my God, what are we going to do? Boom. The Holy Spirit gave them what and how they needed to keep those who got born again stayed in the faith and growing in the faith. Now, let me read one scripture that is very important for us to understand how they know what to do. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. So the early church met both in large corporate settings and also in smaller group settings. Now, look at Acts 2, 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, when you, we, we read those scriptures, uh, uh, really, for, even for me, until recently, I read that, and I just mm, gloss right over it. Question, what is the apostles' doctrine? What is the apostles' doctrine? Mind you, when the book of Acts was written, or rather, no, no. When, when this happened, when the church was growing, there was no New Testament scriptures. There was no Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Not even Acts, because remember, they are acting it out. And we are reading it after the fact. This young, born-again apostles... What? How? Where did it? I mean, remember, a few, just a few weeks ago, Jesus was still chastising them for their unbelief. So what is the apostles', apostles doctrine? Now, I'm bringing this up because you need to understand that the way they got it is the way you and I are going to get it. God is no respect of person. It's only a respect of faith. What is the apostolic doctrine? Let me define it for you. It was the Holy Spirit's interpretation 
of Old Testament scriptures. The apostles' doctrine was the Holy Spirit's interpretation to those apostles in that moment, in that instant of the Old Testament scriptures. Let me say that again. Because it is so important that you guys know that just as those early disciples depended on the Holy Spirit, you and I today, right now, we also have to depend on the Holy Spirit who is the chief administrator of everything Jesus. So in other words, the Holy Spirit shed light to these apostles of the scriptures of old and help them to understand how to move forward in light of what was happening to them at that time based on the patterns and the models that God had already established or had in mind. Huge. Okay. So the Apostles' Doctrine, again, was the Holy Spirit's interpretation of Old Testament scriptures as it related to what was happening on the spot. Now, let's just go to three very important, uh, shall I say, models or, uh, yeah, three important models. Number one, the first one, the Moses and Jethro model. Go to Exodus chapter 18. Verses 13 through 23. How did these apostles know what to do? How did they not just keep on renting tents and say, okay, we're going to have church in the temple of Jerusalem today. We're going to have it in uh, uh, Zebulon tomorrow. No, how, how did they know what to do? How did they know to meet in the temple and in smaller groups? How did they know that by meeting in small groups, the, the result and the benefit that will come to the body? How did they know that? They know that because the Holy Spirit gave interpretation and gave life to Old Testament scriptures. The first one, Moses and Jethro, Exodus chapter 18, verse 13. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. Now, there are ministries today that love this. They take their significance and their self-worth in knowing that, oh man, 300 people were waiting to see me today. No, you're about to die. If, I, if I've ever seen a fool, I'm hearing and seeing one, if you think, because you are, you are such a big, high-profile, great man or woman of God, that 300 people are waiting in your office to see you, just you alone. Ah, they're waiting. Yeah, let, keep them waiting. Let, let, me, let me drink my cup of coffee. Uh, that, something's wrong with that system. Something's wrong with that, as you will see. Verse 14. And so when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, what is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? What is your problem? Translation. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. Oh, really? You are the only man of God in town. Verse 16, when they have a difficulty, they come to me and I judge between one another and I make known the status of God and his laws. Verse 17, the Jethro by that 
Did he buy that concept? Did he buy that, on, that, that explanation? Oh, did he pat Moses on the back? Oh, Moses, you are a man of God. You just delivered the people from Egypt. Oh, man, all the miracles, wonderful. You are good. No! He said to him, the thing that you do is not good. No missing of words. Straight to the point. You think sitting down all day, canceling the people, gives you significance, makes you important. No, that is not good. Verse 18, both you and these people who you are with will surely wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. What an authority. What an authority. Oh, my God. Moses, yeah, you, I know you did signs and wonders in Egypt. You thought you had Mr. Big Stuff. You've arrived. But let me tell you something. Sit down. Get some instruction. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel. And God will be with you. Why? Because the counsel I'm giving you is God-ordained. So you better pay attention. Stand before God for these people. In other words, you pray. So that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. You see the four small groups in the Bible. Right there, you see the first small group in the scriptures. You see the man of God, like many of us, blowing it, trying to do ministry alone. And another man of God, with authority, came and said, you know what? What you're doing is not good. You wear yourself out, and you wear the people out. This is what you need to do. Verse 22. And let them judge the people at all times. There is to be that every great mother they shall bring to you, but every small mother they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. And if you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all these people will also go to their place in peace. I'll come back to that later. So that's model number one. Model number two. You can find that in Nehemiah chapter three, beginning from verse two. It's amazing. When we allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us, the things, the minds of treasure that are in the scriptures that he reveals to us. So Nehemiah has this huge task of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem that was already broken down. How is he going to do it? How do you kill or cut or slice an elephant? When you have a huge project to do, how do you approach it? Is he going to try to do it alone? Or is he going to employ the wisdom of God so that the project can be accomplished in the most efficient manner? 
So Nehemiah also gives us a model of small groups. After selling the vision of rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem to the people, he assigns the work in sections to small groups using the criteria, hear me, of families, similar professions, and those from the same geographical area. This arrangement, this wisdom, contributed to the record time in which the war was built. Why? Because there was a common vision and unity of purpose in a larger group. They knew we need to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That was the purpose and that was the common vision. And each group now owned and contributed their time, their energy, and their expertise to accomplish the task. Woo! That is so powerful. Man. Let me just read one or two scriptures. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zaku, the son of Imri, built. Give me verse... Uh, I need to jump. Give me verse 8. Verse 8. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Harahir, one of the goldsmiths, you see that? And made repairs. Also next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Give me the last one. Just give me verse 32. Verse 32. Same chapter, verse 32. Thank you. And between the upper room and the corner, as far as the ship gate, the goldsmiths, plural, and the merchants, plural, made repairs. In other words, Nehemiah looked at this huge task, the huge project. And rather than just say, oh, okay, all of you guys, just get in the place, let's start working. No. Families that had connections together, he put them aside, okay, you families, okay, build, repair this section. Go smiths, you understand your own language, you have things in common together, you can have fun while you're doing the work, you guys repair this area. Merchants, you can talk, talk trading while you're while, while you repairing. You have options and trading of sell stock and buying stock. Okay, while you're doing that, you repair this area. That's what he did. And because there was this common affinity among these various groups, they rebuilt the wall in spite of the opposition in a record 52 days. So much so, the enemy said, wait a minute, how did they do this? We tried to disrupt them, we persecuted them, yet they succeeded. How? Why? They employed the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. How you can get things done with maximum efficiency when you're working in smaller numbers. You get a vision corporately. Now you come in your area and begin to implement. Let me just move on. So that's the second model. Third one, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The Lord Jesus himself. It's amazing. Now, isn't it amazing that Jesus came on the scene and he not tried to reinvent the wheel? Have you ever thought about that? That he knew what he had to do. He knew his mission was to save the world, to be the sacrifice, ultimately for our sins, 
and to commit his message to a group of people who will not abandon the, the cause. They will not abandon the mission. He knew that. He just didn't spend time preaching from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue. He did that, but he also understood that if what I'm saying and doing will be sustained over time, I need to find a small group to whom I can pour myself and pour the message. And while I preach to the multitudes, I recline with the few who will not just hear what the multitudes heard, but who will also put legs to what they're hearing. And so in Mark chapter 6, in verse 34, Jesus, in multiplying the loaves, give me Mark chapter 6, please. Verse 34, and Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came near and said, this is a deserted place and already, already the hour is late. Send him away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread and they have nothing to eat. But he answered them and said, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then they commanded them to make them all sit down. Watch this. Could Jesus have rained down the multiplied loaves of bread and fish? Yes. Yes. God did that in the wilderness. He, he rained manna down from heaven. He can do it. But he's trying to teach us something. He's trying to show us that to maximize the efficiency of even the miraculous power of God, there needs to be order. So he commanded, he didn't suggest. He commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks, in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. And so they all ate and were filled. Now, let me just move quickly. So we've seen three models. Now, I wonder if perhaps, don't show the reason we don't see as many signs and wonders and miracles happening among us is because we've not employed, employed Jesus' order. Because we are still looking for this super spiritual, superhuman figure, man or woman, preacher, man of God. Ah, oh, the man of God of the hour is here. You are looking for that to see the miracle which God has among you already. And he's trying to help us understand that greater is he that's within each one of you than he that's in the world. And the way to harness the power of this resource is to understand the simplicity of the plans of God. So now quickly, let me, let me now just in closing give us the messages from these three models. Model number one, uh, Moses. Moses teaches us the qualifications of group leaders. Moses teaches us the qualifications that is going to take to lead a grace group. 
Now, don't, 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 just, just chill there for a minute. Go to Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Very quickly. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Thank you. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Now, question. Let me just take a pause here. Why you give me verses 10 through 15? 10 through 15. Let me take a pause. From this verse 1. Does this Saul sound like a man that's qualified to lead the church of Jesus? Remember I said to you that Moses teaches us the qualification to be a great group leader. Here in Acts 9.1, the first introduction of Saul, well, we we saw him in Acts chapter 8, and it was not too good. What we saw about him was not good. But in Acts 9.1, his main ministry was, I'm going to waste the church. If I was Jesus, that qualified him for being disqualified. Automatically. But look at verse 10, the same chapter. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in the vision, Ananias, yes, sir. And he said, let me finish reading now, please. (laughs) Go back, thank you. And he said, here I am, Lord. Verse 11, thank you. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire the house of Judas for the one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he's praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on, his, on him that he might receive his sight. Go on. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. I just didn't see it on social media, not, not on CNN or Fox. No, no, no. I've heard many. How much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Point number two for which this guy should be disqualified. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Would you please reconsider your request, Jesus? Verse 15. (laughs) But, I like the blood of Jesus. But, the Lord said to him, go. And then he asked, chill. Don't worry, just go. Why? For he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Woo! Now give me a second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 in the Amplified Classic. And I need to hurry up now. 2 Corinthians 3, 6 in the Amplified. I'm going to come back and talk about Paul in a minute. Thank you, Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 in the Amplified Classic. Amen. Thank you. It is he. That is God. Now, leave the scripture, and let me, let me just try to make connection. So, under the Moses model, he has his list of criteria. Able men, fear God, loving truth, hating covetousness. He has a list of qualifications that if we were to bring here now and try to judge every one of us, very few will make the cut. Why? Because Moses is still operating under the law. 
Under the law, even Paul would not have qualified. How glory to God. Thank God for a new dispensation. Thank God for a new day. Thank God for a new era. Thank God for God's enablement and God's grace. Because here we are told it is he. Who is he? Jesus. Who has qualified us. I don't care where you came from. The north, the south, the east or the west. Your background, your education, your, whatever your life work is, you need to know you are not qualified by Moses. Now you've been qualified by Jesus. It is he who has qualified us. Oh, look at that parenthesis. Making us to be fit. <laughs> Some of us came with K-leg. Ah, we were just barely limping to make it there. But God said, don't, don't worry about that. I'm going to make you fit. When you stand, nobody will see you limping. When you walk, they won't see that. When you talk, they won't know you're still talking. Because what? I am going to make you fit. So I announce to you this morning, work fine, and all of you that's listening on, you have been qualified. God has made you fit. Glory to God. It does not matter what anybody else says. Once you recognize your identity, whose you are, once you recognize what Jesus has accomplished in and through you, you become automatically qualified. We are not taking SAT tests for your qualification. Hallelujah. We are not taking your graduate test for your qualification. No, 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 no. You are qualified. You are qualified. In the name of Jesus, right there where you are, whatever you are dealing with, whatever you are faced with, whatever decision you are trying to make, whatever position you are trying to apply for, I am telling you, by the might of God that you are already qualified in the name of Jesus and he whom God has qualified, man cannot disqualify in Jesus' name. So arise with confidence. Arise and know you are already qualified. Regardless of Moses' criteria, you're qualified. Number two thing that we see with Nehemiah. So in Moses, we see qualification. In Nehemiah, we see how our gifts work together to accomplish any task. How our gifts working together can accomplish any task. Think about whatever that task is. I don't know if you've ever watched the space rocket launching. Men will sit in Houston. You see barrels of computers with men and women manning them. And you see maybe two or three astronauts at the launch pad. And information is being relayed back and forth. Different discipline of studies, physics, mathematics. Oh, man, I, I can't even call them. All kinds of people in collaborative effort, coming together to do one thing, and it gets done. We see it every day. So in Nehemiah, you and I are encouraged to know that Jesus, when he died and rose from the dead, the Bible says, he gave gifts unto man. 
I'm telling you, you may not look like it, but you are gifted. Oh, my God. Right there at home where you are, say to yourself, knock your chest and say, I'm gifted. And right here in the sun, say, I'm gifted. Make that confession. Say, I'm gifted. I'm a gifted man. I'm a gifted woman. Hallelujah. You are gifted. The challenge has been the way we all run our services, you've not been allowed or you've not seen, the, you've not had a platform to minister in your gift. Where's the word of knowledge? Word of wisdom? Word of prophecy? Gifts of miracle? Gifts of healing? Tongues? Interpretation? Where are they supposed to happen? You think they should happen in large gatherings? Perhaps, sometimes. But more than ever, in that group settings, the various gifts where there's no threat, no intimidation, where the atmosphere for growth is promoted and encouraged, men and women be able, be, they, they begin to discharge their gift. Now give me Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16. No, Ephesians 4, verse 16. Ephesians 4, 16 in the TPT translation. Ephesians 4, 16. Thank you. Look at this. For his body has been formed in his image and is closely joined together and constantly connected as one. And every member has been given what? Divine gifts. Did you hear that? Don't ever say you don't have a gift because you're seeing it. Every member. Now, you may not have tapped into your gift, you may not have seen the manifestation of your gift because you're operating on a different platform. Okay? Every member has been given divine gifts to contribute. So what's the purpose of the gift? The purpose of the gift is not just for me. No! Oh, man, I need a minute here. I need a minute here. The gift I have does not do much for me. The gift I have is for you. And the gift you have is for the rest of us. So if you sit on your gift, what happens? You deprive us of the benefit of that gift that God has given you for the rest of the body. And every member has been given the gifts to contribute. So let me ask you, are you contributing your quota? Ooh, that's food for thought. To contribute to the growth of all. Ah, the church is not growing, we're not growing. Nah, nah, nah. You are the reason. When we're not using our divine gift to contribute, to add value, to encourage, to the growth of all. And these gifts operate effectively throughout the whole body. We are built up and made perfect in love. Amen. Last one. Boy. I believe the time. I'm sorry. Last one, very quickly though, very quickly. So in Moses, we saw qualification. In Nehemiah, we saw how our gifts come together to work, to accomplish a task, any task that is. And Jesus, what do we see in Jesus' small group? In Jesus' small group, unlike any other group, we see community. This is a model of the group through which community is clearly demonstrated. 
And I'm not going to spend any more time on this because time is already gone. So what does community mean? Questions are answered, number one. In communities, questions are answered. He preaches to the large congregation in small group. Master, what do you mean when you said X, Y, Z? All through the scriptures. That's the only place we have the time to ask our question. Questions are answered. Number two, they eat together. Number three, they rest together. Come apart a season. Go and get some rest. In other words, they do vacation together. This is where you see community thriving. Questions are asked. They're eating together. They're resting together. Ah, and community will not be community if we don't have disputes. So not only do they have questions that are answered, eat together, rest together, they also have disagreements resolved. Amen. That is the essence of community. The disciples rub elbows. They challenge one another. They fight. And Jesus used that as teaching moments to teach them to grow in their experience. And then lastly, they celebrate together. And so I'm making the case for grace groups. I'm going to pick up from there next week. Amen. And so, Father, I just want to thank you for our time together this morning. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have qualified every one of us. And I pray that we receive that mindset of knowing that we are qualified. Not only did you qualify us, now you now place gifts in our hands. You place gifts in our life. I pray, Father God, in Jesus' name, in days to come, weeks to come, that each one of us begin to discover our gifts and employ the gifts for the overall growth of the entire body. Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray for activation of the gifts of God in every life. And Lord God, lastly, that you are teaching us how to do community, how we can eat, rest, celebrate, and yes, when we have disputes, resolve them in a manner that honors and glorifies you. And so, Father, I thank you now. I bless you, Father God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.